0: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Taurusia in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. This week we chat with a comedian working within the news space. Dan Illick is a multi-talented comedian, satirist, and producer. You may have seen him on the ABC's Hungry Beast or on Channel 10, but you may also have seen his work on billboards in Glasgow and New York City, or you may have laughed at one of his videos in your social media feed. Dan is also a longtime podcaster with an award-winning news satire podcast called Irrational Fear. Dan came into the studios recently and we had a rollicking discussion about his career, podcasting and disinformation Dan has an interesting take on combating disinformation, which we get to in this discussion. Dan Illick, welcome to 4th Estate. Oh, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, so Dan, we're going to talk a lot about comedy, the news, satire, but let's go back to the beginning. Tell mm, us about... All
1: things I'm well versed in. Thank you for bringing on, me on to
0: talk about things I
1: know about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about growing up, and was comedy a big part of your life uh, when you were young?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess so. Like, I think... As a kid, when I was like 10, 12, all I ever wanted to do was perform, be funny, you know, live up to the dream of being on a show like The D-Gen's Late Show, uh, and which heavily influenced me as a, as a kid, discovering it at 10.30 at night on the ABC one night. And then ever since I discovered it, I just, wanted to, I just wanted more of it. I wanted to watch it over and over again. And, you know, that was really fun. And then I kind of got into musical theatre uh, through a group called The Cumberland Gang Show, which was a scout and guide show at the Parramatta Riverside Theatres. So through that, I ended up... tasting and uh, what it tastes like to not only be on stage, but after a couple of years, I was made assistant producer. So I got the taste of uh, leading 150 people to doing something stupid on stage. And tell you what, leadership, it's a drug. Uh, And so (laughs) that really really kind of set me going in terms of really understanding how to get the most out of people, trying to create a platform where people felt supported and, uh, and uh, their talents embraced and finding folks with talent and put them in the position for them to shine. So that was kind of like the first time I got to not only be on the receiving end of such support, but also give that to others. And that was a really fun um, period of my life when I, was, when, I was a, when I was a teenager, really.
0: So look, early on, was it comedy or was it the performing um, aspect that, that grabbed you?
1: I think comedy, I think, you know, funny things always... Caught my eye, things that made me laugh. I was well into, (laughs) like my dad. My dad was a big, a big consumer of the Marx Brothers, so uh, that kind of high camp humour really tickled me, Um, and it's probably why I'm such a ham now. Um, And you know, stuff like Danny Kaye was always very funny, and things like that, which Dad kind of forced upon us as kids. But then, kind of as I grew up. Um, really getting into the intersection where media and the real world and community intersect. So, um, I think that's why television shows like the late show were so funny to me. It was because they would often do stuff that was in the street, um, and would blend the real world with the tea, the, the, with the showbiz world. Well, well. And that was kind of, that was kind of a bit of an aha moment. I was like, wow, this is great. You actually are participating in the public domain when you, or on a show like that, and that's really fun. So I think there's an element of um, element of uh, being a participant as well, and I feel like the word participant—that's a good word. And I think yep. I think I would consider myself a participant when it comes to um,
0: doing anything. So look, you, you make it to Macquarie University, and
1: <laughs> oh, they let me in. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. <laughs> um, Thank you, Macquarie University. And
0: um, you kept performing. You did lots of things during the, the, that time. Tell us about a little bit of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the uni was so great. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Macquarie Lighthouse Drama Theatre doing shows with Dramac at the Drama Society, uh, of, of whom many a great alumni come from, including Chris Lilly, uh, but also folks who I went through uni with, like James Pender and Heath Franklin, who I went on to do television shows with. Um, we all kind of met at university, so... It was a really, and Chris McDonald, who created a sitcom called The Beatification of Newt Burton and the Great Viagra Robbery. And that brought together not only James Pender and Heath Franklin, but also uh, Jess Cook, who's a bit of an arts person in Sydney, um, and Becky Gage, who's Heath Franklin's wife now. Uh, and we went to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and we were like one of the first kind of comedy troupes from Sydney to kind of pave a way... As a troupe to go to the international Mel- Melbourne Melbourne International Comedy Set, uh, Festival, not many solo comedians made the trip down from Sydney back then, let alone a group of university students. And that show kind of morphed uh, over the next few years. We went from doing that show as a sitcom to uh, uh, Chris McDonald pulling together the best performers and writers from all the university reviews in Sydney and putting on a show called The Third Degree. And The Third Degree was, was like the best of all the Sydney your reviews. It was great. We had people from uh, Arts Review, Com- Comedy Review Macquarie, Computer Science Review, Engineering Review, Med Review from UNSW, all in this one show with like the best writing and the best performers. And I was in that show.
0: <laughs> now, The Third Degree, I'm right in saying that then led to Channel 10.
1: Yeah, so it was pretty amazing. This show went on stage and, uh, a couple of producers really backed it. A couple of people who I consider the people, the, the doyens of our comedy career. One was Nicholas Murray, who runs CJZ Productions, who you should have on The Fourth Estate. He's a very intelligent man in all things media. Uh, the other guy was called John Pindar. John Pindar was the doyen of Australian comedy. He was a New Zealander, funnily enough, but he started so many wonderful comedy things in Australia, including The Last Laugh in Melbourne. Um, the comedy festival in Melbourne itself Circus Oz in in Sydney, and and just so many incredible events and festivals. He did the Big Laugh Festival out of Parramatta, and then the World's Funniest Island at Cockatoo Island. Just incredible guy, John Pinder, and he saw us, paired us with Nick Murray, and said, "Hey, you know what? These kids have got something. You should." Check out, check these guys out, and Nick Murray's like, oh, I reckon they're pretty funny, and he called his mate Glenn Robbins and Dan in Melbourne said you should check these guys out, and Glenn Robbins called his mates Rob Sitch and Jane Kennedy to come and have a look at us, uh, so we were like, you know, 23, 24 plus That's the comedy mafia. That's the comedy mafia. <laughs> That's it. Um, and anyway, so Glenn and Nick ended up taking us under their wing and then pitching a sketch comedy show to Channel 10. Channel 10 were really excited about the prospect of having their own Flight of the Concords. So they kind of were like, wow, we love Flight of the Concords. It was At the time it was run by um, David Mott, who was a comedy, comedy nerd. He is now head of um, uh, ITV. Um, so he makes uh, uh, The Jungle Show, where the celebrities go to The Jungle. <laughs> <laughs> but you should have David Mott on your show too. He'd be <laughs> a very good media brain. Um, and, yeah, so they... They threw some money at us to do some development. We sat in a room and wrote some sketches. Uh, and the people in that room were incredible. Not only was it the people I've mentioned before, but Felicity Ward, who is you now a comedy superstar. Um, uh, who else was in that room? Tim Minchin, who you might have heard of. He mm-hmm. <laughs> was in that room working with us. Um, Jordan Riscoffulis, who is a comedy and Twitch superstar. Uh, and w- we we were all in this room together writing and trying to make each other laugh. And then we performed... To the channel, a bevy of Channel Ten executives, uh, in a boathouse in in Rushcutters Bay, as a community boathouse you could rent, and they rented it. (laughs) They just so it's just us around three tables, doing jokes, singing songs, and performing sketches for you know five executives, and they had a great time. We know we you know we showed them where we spent their money, making the weirdest, strangest stuff. It was a live performance of what could have been taped sketches. And anyway, we went from we went from the, that table read to doing a pilot. That t- that pilot from going to, to go to six episodes, and then from six episodes we went to twelve episodes within the case of two weeks. So it was like this ro- wonderful roller coaster where we're like, "Oh, here's six weeks, go sit in the room." Oh, congratulations, you've got a pilot. That's a big deal. Oh, congratulations, the pilot hasn't even finished yet. You have got six episodes. Oh, congratulations, we <laughs> we haven't even started episode one. They're going to be giving you another six. So we had the first season. Uh, first season of twelve, all locked away, ready to go. So, um, that was amazing. Then we got one more season out of them, and um, and Ron and John's kind of uh, ended there. But it was so rare to have young people on television who authored their own w- work and were kind of given the resources to make the dumbest shit ever well, <laughs> and you're, have it
0: broadcast. You all in your early twenties. Yeah, we, I, I was twenty four. Yeah, yeah,
1: I think the earliest uh, oldest was twenty seven. So that would have been Heath, maybe. Yeah,
0: it's a lot like the D Gen in some respects.
1: It was, yeah, yeah. It was, um, it, it was a very lucky group. Yeah, we were very, very blessed to be in the right place at the right time. It was. It's very strange to be out of university and living your dream. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. I kind of, I kind of floated around on TV before then. I, I, I. hosting up for it on fbi um for six months before i got a gig at channel nine at funniest home videos as a producer so i kind of gave up my up for it gig which i always regret giving up breakfast on fbi to go to channel nine and then i hated working at channel nine so much hated working at funniest home videos so much um only lasted three months and then thankfully a month after they were like hey we got a pilot i was like well This is great. You know, all of a sudden we've got a, all of a sudden, uh, my career's back on track.
0: And look, after Ronnie John, you, you moved on to Hungry Beast. How did you get that gig?
1: Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of a, a bit of a weird kind of gap in between Ronnie John's and Hungry Beast. And, uh, during the, during the period, second season of Ronnie John's, I, I kind of made a viral sketch that went, went off the charts in 2006 um uh, it was a parody of the where the bloody hell are you campaign. Hmm. And, um, it got more hits than the actual government's campaign. And I got sued by tourism Australia. Um, but <laughs> I didn't, I, I had some good advice from my lawyer at the time who said, no, that doesn't matter. You won't, you, you, they've got nothing to stand on. Just tell them to go get stuffed. And it was, um, a really amazing thing it was it was a bit of an aha moment when it came to the internet and digital content. I was when some folks from, um, a group called GetUp reached out and they said, Hey, we love what you did there. Could you work with us on a project? And I was like, I don't know who you are. Uh, I've never heard of you before. GetUp was very new <laughs> in 2006. <laughs> uh, and I went on holidays and I, I was, I came, I went on holidays to America, to a wedding in America. On the way home, I was sitting next to Major Michael Maury, who was David Hicks's lawyer. And I'd made some... Horrendous animations about David Hicks, and I, which were very funny at the time for Ronnie Johns, and I played them through. He said, "This is great. You should do something for us." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, maybe." So yeah, yeah. Let me connect you up with some people. They like connected me up with GetUp, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I made this kind of viral sketch of me pretending to be David Hicks um, doing David Hicks's cribs, uh, and it was this MTV kind of parody of me as David Hicks doing into this parody of Cribs. And it was really, really funny. And it raised a bunch of money to campaign for the release of David Hicks. And that was a real aha moment for me. It was the very early days of the internet and digital content. And it was like, Oh, you can, you can make something without it being on television and you can connect it to an audience and you can get that audience to help you achieve change. And that was a real interesting thing. And, at that time, after I'd made a few of those clips, Charlie Pickering took me out to lunch in Manly, and he's like, "Hey man, I really like those clips you made, man. Do you want to do you want to come and work for us in Melbourne? We're going to start a TV show." And I'm like, "Okay, great." So <laughs> uh, I ended up directing a show called "The Mansion" that Charlie Pickering and Michael Chamberlain hosted on the Comedy Channel, and um, so I did that for about a year, and. Then I kind of moved to Melbourne, and I moved my life to Melbourne, working on various other jigsaw productions as as warm up guy, and I was doing comedy in Melbourne, making videos on the internet, and uh, doing stand up and doing sketches and kind of doing audience warm up for other TV shows. And the project reached out, and they they saw my videos too, and they wanted to talk about a job on the project. I'm like, oh, great. This is awesome. I could be a reporter on the project. And they're like, oh no, we want you to direct the project. I'm like, oh, right. I don't, I don't really, I don't really want to direct the project, but I'll think about it. And at the same time, Project Next also was happening, which is the precursor to Hungry Beast. So I applied for Project Next, um, which was this, the, this incredible form, incredible opportunity for, um, of, uh, to find the next new talent for Australian media. And, this form was like twenty pages long, and it and it, it required uh, hours to kind of write the answers to. Uh, I spent the time doing it. At the time, I was like, I don't know if this is for me because I've I've already been on television. I don't know if I should be <laughs> doing this. It's, I should be. I might be taking up space from somebody else, but I I put it in anyway. Um, and lo and behold, I got a I got a audition um, for it off the base of of filling out that huge form. And what at that time was happening with Project Next was Andrew Denton, Anita Jacoby, Andy Neal, and their production assistants were going around the country doing face-to-face interviews with 1,500 people to find 20 people that they could work with (laughs) for Project Next. Um, And I walked into Elston Wick Studios at the ABC to do this interview and there was Andrew Denton behind a desk, Andy Neal, who's a much lauded ABC producer, produced everything from the chaser to Backchat to so many incredible things front up. Um, and, uh, and lots of Andrew's shows as well. And there was Anita Jacoby as well. So they were, they were, but then they put us through the ringer, like in, in like half an hour, uh, we had to answer all these absurd questions and then do like a mock interview with the prime minister and, uh, do, <laughs> it was like being a circus performer. Um, and it was amazing. Then they threw you in a room by yourself for an hour with a video camera and you had to make a sketch or a video with only in-camera editing with a bunch of toys and props that they'd also put in that room. <laughs> so It was like this weird, it was like this, all right, well, let's that see sounds... what it was Scrolling. I mean, this is the days before. We all had iPhones, you know, yep. none of us were kind of real camera literate. Um, I don't even remember what I made, but yeah. So, and from that, I was, I was walking down the street in Johnson, Johnson Street. And I remember where I was when I got the call. Um, and I'd just been offered a job directing the project, uh, which would have been great money. And I emailed the Zapruder's other films, which is Andrew's company at the time. And I said, Hey, just checking on this project next application, uh, I have been offered a job at the project. Um, uh, just wondering, but I'd rather do Project Next if it got up. Um, let us know um, where my application is at. And uh, and if, if I didn't make Project Next, I'll go work at the project. Uh, and then Andrew Denton called me uh, while I was walking down Johnson Street and I walked into this, the Great Dane furniture there. <laughs> I remember it so clearly. <laughs> and he's like, uh, Willidge, is Andrew Denton here? And I'm like, oh, hello, Andrew. He's like... I just want to say congratulations. The project offered you a job, <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and I said yes, they did, Andrew. He said, don't take it, and I said, okay, I won't. I won't, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> and um, it was amazing to kind of uh, have a great conversation and now become, you know, really good friends with one of one of my childhood heroes. So that was an incredible period. With where hungry beast found so many amazing people, including people I had known before. So uh, Mark Fennell and I w- were good friends from FBI radio. We'd even done a Melbourne comedy festival show together all about media called Massage My Medium, uh, which I think is on YouTube somewhere. You can watch watch it. So it's like a, a media commentary show, really funny kind of like a grew and transfer of, about media um, done by two young people. It was really fun. Um, and then a year later, you know, we're on TV together making Hungry Beast, which is essentially the same kind of, um, deal. It was really great. So, uh, and some of my, you know, my best friends still are from Hungry Beast days. People like, uh, you know, Lewis Hobber, who co-hosts Irrational Fear with me, who's simply one of the funniest people in Australian media. Um, Mark Humphreys, who was a intern yes. with us, he was on
0: who was on Fourth Estate a few weeks ago, and he mentioned this. <laughs> he
1: was an intern, yeah. Did, was, did
0: you get him to make you a cup of coffee? We,
1: yeah, of course, of course. We had interns, <laughs> uh, and now you know he's amazing. One of my dearest friends. Uh, just a, simply one of the most talented people. Um, Veronica Milson, so funny. Kirsten Drysdale, so funny. And then incredible journalist brains as well. Well,
0: there's, that was the thing about the show, that it wasn't one format, was it? It was about three or four formats at once.
1: That's right, yeah. It was um, It was a real smorgasbord of ideas um, all done in an aggressively youth, youthy way for the time. But, yeah, there's been so many kind of award-winning elements that have come out of that show, from Walkleys to Peabody's to... Emmys, uh, you know, Pat Clare has gone on to uh, win so many Emmys for his uh, motion titles, which he kind of pioneered on Hungry Beast. Then every other news kind of organization kind of ripped off. So, yeah, just uh, an astounding pool of talent in that group. And I I love them all dearly.
0: We've been talking about, you know, I I guess the the first half of your career, and it's covered a a pretty wide spectrum. But
1: I think that's the actually the entirety of my career. I think my career's <laughs> ended. My career ended uh, fifteen years ago. It's done. No, uh, no, I'm no, no up. not uh, at all.
0: Not at all. Um, and we'll get to the next bit. <laughs> but but I, I want to get get your view on how you how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a comedian, a satirist, a producer? Because you've done all those things.
1: Yeah, I kind of I kind of see myself um, as. <laughs> As Benjamin Franklin of comedy. Um, No, uh, I I don't know. I see myself as a comedian first and foremost. So things I like doing, I like them to be funny. Um, And I like, and often there's no one else around to make them, so I make them myself. That makes me a producer. And so it's kind of one of those things where I don't really have a handle on what I'm doing right now but in the past I kind of used to describe myself as a journalist and a comedian, and I'd call myself an investigative humorist. Hmm. Um, and then I would basically be able to take serious topics and break them down in a really funny way and make people laugh and think and, um, consider a point of view using comedy. And that's kind of what I've been doing, um, throughout my entire career and, try to express that in many different kind of ways.
0: And, and you've talked about breaking down serious topics and let, let's move into that. And in the last decade you've been making a rational fear. Tell us about moving into the podcast space.
1: Well, back in 2010, 2012, sorry, there wasn't really a space to combine comedy and the world. Hmm. There wasn't a platform for comedians to talk about the world in a serious and funny way. Um, there was no daily show in Australia. Uh, fast forward 10 years, like, you know, uh, probably up until two years ago, this remained true. You had, you had, uh, half a dozen. So you had like, you know, Pickering show, you had Sean, Sean show, you had, uh, the project to a lesser extent, the feed. Um, so all these things kind of popped up since then, but back in 2010, back in 20, 2012, there wasn't a platform. So I wanted to create that platform, um, I was a comedian desperate to ply my craft as uh, to do to kind of mix that that intersection of the world uh, and participating in society but with comedy and being a participant in kind of civil discourse with with comedy and that's why I created Rational Fear as a place for um for comedians to say something about the world to bring experts and comedians together Um, and one of the other things that was kind of special about Irrational fear and still holds true today is that we always held space for climate and talk about climate change. Because back in 2012, no one was talking about climate change. Uh, and fast forward now, everybody is. Um, and I'm not saying that's due to our podcast, but, um, I don't know, causation. No, take the credit. uh, Yeah, yeah. Take the credit. (laughs) But it's, it's one of those things where we're a little bit ahead of the curve. And even if you go back to the very first episodes, which are still on online, can hear us interview experts who are in the Arctic watching, uh, the tundra melt in front of them, like, like, like chocolate cake falling apart. Um, so it's like these are, and we had Tim Flannery on, we had Dr. Carl on in those early days, we had lots of other kind of climaty experts. And so, yeah, we, we always kind of had space for climate. And I think that was kind of a little difference, even though hopefully the audience, wouldn't notice in that they would enjoy the comedy at the same time, but I always trying to hold us, hold some kind of space for climate.
0: What do you love about podcasting?
1: The RSS feed, you know, really love, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, it, do you know is, what it is? It's, it's community building. That yep, is the number yep. one thing. So, uh, we've got a small but dedicated community of listeners, you know, eight, eight, 10, people listen to us every week. That is awesome. 300 people give us money every month for, for Patreon. That is amazing. Um, And at times like this, where we've just had a sponsor drop out, like that Patreon money pays for the show. You know, we couldn't do it without it. And it's, it's um, not paying my mortgage, like when we have a sponsor, but it just means we can, we can save up and, you know, pay the costs of what it costs to have a podcast. And that's, that's incredible that people back you financially like that just to, to make a show about the world (laughs) and climate change. It's great. It's a, it's, I'm I'm very blessed. Yeah. It's, um, the community is, is the best. Um, and it's great to turn up to a live show and have an opera house full or a Brisbane powerhouse full or, um, or doing a big festival, like festival dantorous ideas and introducing new people to the podcast and people being amazed, like, oh, it's so incredible how you can mix such a serious topic and be funny at the same time. It's like, yes, it's not incredible. We've been doing it for 10 years. <laughs> you can do it.
0: You were on South by Southwest just recently.
1: Yeah. That's great. We did, we did Rational Fear there. I was really, um, really lucky to be invited to do that.
0: Well, look, um, let's talk about Jokekeeper. Because back in 2021, you raised a pile of money and took out a, took out billboards on Broadway in New York City. <laughs> now, I remember this when it happened, and I was shocked because I didn't even think it was possible that you, somebody could do something like this. <laughs> Where did the idea come from?
1: It's pretty funny, isn't it? It's like, uh, you, anyone can buy a billboard. <laughs> you just got to call yeah, them up and yeah. buy it. <laughs>
0: I think we sometimes forget that the, the magic word is money.
1: Yeah. If you've got the money, you can go and buy a billboard. That's it. You can do anything with money. Uh, that was the most amazing things. Well, I tell you what, it was 2021. It was day 96 of lockdown uh, in Sydney. I was so frustrated because I had I'd a bit of money saved up to go to COP26 in Glasgow and do a rational fear in a pub. Um, during the climate talks in Glasgow and pulled together smart and funny people once a week there. But none of us could go anywhere because the health minister forgot to reply to an email from Pfizer. So (laughs) none none of us had vaccinations. We were like the last kind of uh, global uh, power (laughs) that didn't have vaccinations Um, and we weren't traveling anywhere. And I was so frustrated. So I bought with my, which I think I cost $12,000, this billboard in Glasgow, which could put three bits of artwork up. And so I bought it with, with my own money and I, and I decided to run a crowdfunding campaign to help me pay for it. And I was like, well, here's, here's what we're going to do. I am going to, I bought this billboard, I've got two bits of artwork, uh, shaming Australia, uh, on their climate record, um, one is like cuddle a koala until we make them extinct, which I thought was pretty funny. And Nordacious from Brisbane made this in beautiful artwork. And the other words, Australia net zero by twenty three hundred, <laughs> with a burning <laughs> with a burning kangaroo. Now the the great thing about that that billboard, net zero by twenty three hundred, is like if you're driving past, you might think oh Yeah, it's just another net zero by 2030 message. It's just ty- oh no, and then you might think, oh no, it's just a typo. When you realize it's not a typo and it's intentional, you go, oh, that's pretty funny. And then you go, oh, 2300. Oh, that's according to the experts. Um, Katan Joshi online is a great climate brain. Um, you should have him on this podcast. He said, <laughs> he said, this is actually my close to my data. I've worked out that with our current policies, we will reach net zero by like twenty two ninety nine or something like that. And I was like, "Yes, Ooh. factually accurate satire." Uh, <laughs> um, and then I had this blank one free because you could put three bits of artwork on this particular billboard. And so I asked the crowd to pay for it, and if you paid four grand, you got to put your own. <laughs> you got to put your own message in the billboard. And I set this crowdfunder off at six thirty a.m. By 8.30 a.m., I'd reached $12,000, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. The money kept rolling in. By the end of the week, I was up to $90,000, and I was like, I was like oh, we got it got to like $116,000 by the end of it, and I was like, this is totally wild, and I learned a couple of things. I'm like, well, I'm going to need more billboards and I'm going to need bigger billboards. So not only did I buy that roadside one in Glasgow, I bought gigantic freeway-sized ones in Glasgow Um, and then I bought a series of little ones around Australia and then I bought the biggest billboard in Times Square, which wrapped the Marriott Hotel in Times Square from one side of the building to the
0: other It's an incredible image.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hang on, let me... um yeah, it's an incredible image, and I've got it on the back of um of, of my irrational fear business card. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there it is, there, and it's it's got the Australia Net Zero by twenty three hundred burning kangaroo with the irrational fear logo on the side. Um, just amazing. And so with that, yeah, because we <laughs> had so much real estate, uh, I invited other artists and people to collaborate with me on it to put more, more um art together. So the chaser wrote a billboard. I wrote another couple of jokes. Um, Sean Marsh, who's a designer from Sydney, was often being tagged in artwork that he put up as mock artwork um, about, about uh, had a picture of the opera house and um, and, and kind of mocking Australia's uh, climate campaign. People were tagging me going, good on you, Dan, this is your billboard. I was like, well, it's not my billboard, but it could be. And so I took his mock and I asked him to Built it out in the specs and he built it out in the specs for me for our, our billboard in Times Square. So we actually had a billboard. It wasn't just like a, a, a mock-up of one that'd been circular circulating around the internet. Um, and that was amazing. It was such a fun thing. All this was done in lockdown from my bedroom, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, it's, it's, pretty but it's pretty amazing.
0: You've tapped into the frustration we were all feeling in this country.
1: Totally. And, you know, I feel like there's still that frustration there and, uh, there's a great stat that made it onto the billboard. So one of the billboards was paid for by a very famous, um, actor who said, I want to put a message out saying, yeah, nah, but yeah, nah, sorry to the world. <laughs> um, most Australians believe in climate action. <laughs> sorry about our government. And so he, he, he wanted to make this apology. So I, um, I put his apology up as a billboard too, which... He bought the four thousand dollar one in Glasgow, but it ended up because he bought that one, he ended up getting an enormous return for value in, the, in Times Square. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and that had a great stat on it, which is sixty five percent of Australians believe our government isn't doing enough to address climate change. And I think that's that's that that's holds true, holds true, and it's still true today. You know.
0: So look, I'm right in saying you think humour can bring about change.
1: Yeah, that's my that's my theory of change. I have this idea that you can create with comedy. By pairing a joke up with a fact, you can create an info bomb, and an info bomb will sit in the back of someone's brain and explode an idea in a way they might not have considered, and it'll bring people to an issue in a more friendly other way than a, than, a, than, a, than a than other information would. So that's the that's the hope, you know. So while it's not not really straight satire, it's often perceived as campaigny, but hopefully it does it in a way that's funny and interesting and just wakes people up to an issue that they might not be thinking about immediately.
0: And look, I ask this because uh, we've, we've just been through a pretty bruising time in this country with the voice referendum going down. Mm. And I, I saw lots of good satire and comedy during the campaign. You did a video that got a, a great deal of traction. What was your take on the tenure of the, of the debate? And, you know, was comedy lost in all the shouting? Because there was some great comedy going on. And obviously it's not comedy's fault that the- that, What did the, you see? Uh, like uh, uh, Briggs's video, and I'm thinking of Chaser and uh, Beto the times. There was some like just some yep. great stuff around.
1: So during during the referendum, about six weeks out, I got really despondent with the numbers, and I was like, "This is terrible. I can't believe the numbers have gone from sixty-one percent to thirty-eight <laughs> percent in five months." Um, and this is all from disinformation, misinformation, lies. The No campaign was very slick with their lies. And it made me despondent that Yes wasn't com- combating it in any meaningful way that was cutting through. So at that point, I decided to do another crowdfunder campaign and put together some First Nations comedians and some other shit stirrers together. And we created something called F Yes. And we fundraised, we crowdfunded 120,000 in seven days. At this point, it's a joke, right? Because it's like, oh, well, we did it for the billboards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That happened over 30 days. Of course I can raise 120,000, but then we just raised 120,000 in 7 days and I didn't even blink. I'm like, "Of course. That makes complete sense." <laughs> <laughs> That's completely natural. Anyone can do this. <laughs> um and with that money, we also found another 100,000 from a generous um, backer who wanted who believed in the campaign and then a bunch of other smaller uh, 20,000 donations. So we raised about 220 all up. Um and or 240 all up, and we spent probably 120 on Mark Zuckerberg, giving him Meta ads promoting yep. content. spent about 80 or so on content building, writing, producing, making content, um, and then Meta got the fair chunk, got the, got the fair size of the of the budget to promote that content out to outside of the bubbles that we normally set. And that campaign was hugely successful. Sure, it didn't win the yes campaign or didn't turn the yes campaign around. But what it did was it gave people, um, really funny content, explainers memes to have conversations with their friends and family about the voice and explain to people in a funny and smart way about what the referendum was all about. And our content was seen over 3 million times, a million on TikTok, a million on Twitter and a million on Instagram. That is incredible. Like in five weeks. Um, and it was just made me go, wow, like. We imagine what we would have had, what we could have done if we had $8 million, not $200,000. Or, or if you had five months. Well, this is it. When, yeah. when the came when, when soon as Dutton decided to go no, which was around March, um, even prior to that, I was out and about with a deck asking for money from yes to run a campaign, independent campaign to do this um, with a lot more money than two hundred thousand dollars. And they had thirty five million. So I was I was hoping to get a million or two million to run it and a million would have gone on a million well, fifth, one one point <laughs> one and a half million would have gone on meta ads. Like would have been hmm. um a much better use of their time than running market research or whatever. Um and we would have spent a ton of money on six months, um, giving people work, giving First Nations people, comedians, a platform to say something and providing really clear, really funny communications around it. So if we had six months, I think we would have, um, been a lot more successful, particularly debunking and also pre-bunking information that was coming from the no side.
0: And look, um, this all feeds into two things, uh, disinformation and, Um, you know, our media, our politics, and it now seems like our comedy is, is getting heavily siloed. (laughs) Um, how, first thing, how do you stop disinformation and how do you get people out of their silo?
1: One, you can't stop disinformation. It's going to happen. Disinformation is as old as the dinosaurs. It is, it's going to be around and it's, it's just because the tools we use to disseminate information are so much more fluid and accessible to everyone. They're going to be, it's going to be everywhere all the time. The only way you can do it is to get to brains first. And to get to brains first, plan an idea and warn people that the bad information is coming and what the bad information could look like. Mm. <laughs> So if you are planning on, um, I don't know, um, building a garage, uh, tell your neighbors about it before the council does. Or, you know, if you're planning on a new logo at work, get into that intranet or send a Slack with an explanation about what's going to happen and send out some information about debunking the information that you might get. It's like anticipating what those negative negative uh, implications could be and then countering it before it happens. So pre-bunking, that is like the number one thing. Okay. Um, what was your second part of the question? Uh, how do we get people out of their silo? So the, that's also difficult. There's no way to do that other than being, other than paying in di- digital sense, paying for that content to be seen in other people's silos outside of their own personal algorithms mm. or to, um, having face-to-face conversations. So actually, Rubber hits the road, meeting people where they are and having conversations in community. That's it. That's it.
0: Well, look, on that note, let's, I've got time for one more question. What's next? That's
1: a really good question. Um, I started a new production company. I'm really excited. Uh Yeah. Um, so we are making an animation with a talented Melbourne artist. I can't say anything more. It's, it's a bunch of TikToks. It's going to be great. Uh, and the new production company is called Not a Real Media Company, Proprietary Limited. Mm-hmm. And we have also got our first pitch to the ABC tomorrow. So who knows? If that's successful, you might see a brand new TV show on ABC. But I doubt it because they don't like new TV shows there.
0: Well, look, it's been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it, Dan Thanks for being on for State.
1: Hey, great. Look, I look forward to coming back for the 5th Estate, uh, the 6th Estate. Uh, Get me back for the 24th (laughs) Estate
0: uh, anniversary special. Will do. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2 and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. 4th Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to 4 for State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4 You can also find us on threads. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.